Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Back in the 1970s, many young guys decorated their dorm rooms with posters of the beautiful Farrah Fawcett, not Steve Justice. His choice of wall art reflected something deeper, raging ambition. These days, Justice is the senior vice president of engineering for Virgin Galactic. But once upon a time, he was just a kid who loved airplanes. He never considered doing anything else with his life. By the time he went off to college, Steve had focused his sights, aiming for one of the most coveted jobs in aerospace. The poster that hung in his room of the Air Force's mysterious spy plane, the SR-71 Blackbird, the world's only Mach 3 jet, was a constant reminder. It was there every day when he came back from class. It was there every night when he went to sleep. Someday, somehow, he was determined to find a way to work for Lockheed's Skunk Works, the most innovative factory in the history of American aviation. Let's talk about the power of thinking big with Steve Justice. How did you first become fascinated with aviation? Boy, that's that's uh, that's stepping into the wayback machine. So my dad was a Quad 40 gunner on an aircraft carrier in World War II, and his gun director mount was on the flight deck level. Uh, this was on the USS Wasp. So he would watch flight operations, and he developed a passion for airplanes. So as for as long as I can remember, we built plastic models of airplanes and radio control models and control line models, went to the airport and air shows, and when I turned 16, he allowed for me to start getting my pilot's license. So he, he imprinted, I don't, it must have impacted his DNA somehow because he imprinted that on me, and then uh, when it came time to, to go to college... He supported me going into aerospace engineering, even though most of the aerospace engineers that were graduating at the time 
we're selling shoes and cars. <laughs> so uh, I... Uh, he had a little faith in you. Uh, I don't know whether he had faith in me or faith that the situation would change, but what my dad did was he supported my dream because I think there was a piece of him that always wanted to fly, a piece of him that always wanted to be around airplanes. And so he was, he was, he was living part of his dream through me. Now that's very important because as people will know uh, on this podcast, we talk awful a lot about dreams and risk taking and the importance of, of believing in yourself, having that support system. In his case, he literally supported your dream. Oh, absolutely, because without that level, it would have been very easy for him not to have, to, to want me to go into the family business. Um, that was the easy path. The hard path was for me to go to school very far from home and to get a degree in something that really wasn't appreciated by the economy at the time. And I was fortunate enough that when I graduated, in 1978, it was right at the beginning of the Reagan defense buildup. So there was a ton of jobs available out there. I was fortunate from a support mechanism, but also just flat luck on timing. And of course, you grew up in the latter days of Apollo. And what did that say about who we were as a country? I remember that Sunday night watching Neil Armstrong step on the moon. We went to a Baptist church at the time, and there was always a Sunday evening service, and the, the, the minister called off the Sunday evening services so that everyone could be at home watching the, the moon program. And I had I'd been saving all the Life magazines from all the, the Gemini shots and the early Apollo build-up shots. And so I remember watching intensely the, the grainy image of first upside down, and then they corrected the image. And I took a photo of the TV with a Polaroid camera um, because I wanted to just capture that moment because it was, it was a, a set of dreams coming true. And at the time, I didn't appreciate the amount of risk that was being taken. I didn't appreciate the speed with which they did it, the commitment that it took to do it. But I knew that that was something special. And I remember walking outside and looking up at the crescent moon and thinking, wow, wow. And when did you discover the Blackbird? The Blackbird, it, it, there was always rumors of, you know, these, these Lockheed airplanes and that kind of stuff. But the, the, the Blackbird itself, our, this poster came out in the, the mid-70s. I was in college at Georgia Tech, and... The first posters came out of it. There had been photographs, but really no information. And this poster, you know, speculated on the performance of the airplane. It had a three view of it along with, with photographs. And it was hanging on the wall of uh, the, the apartment we had to rent. I didn't, I didn't stay on campus. I had a roommate, and uh, we lived off campus. Had that poster up on the wall, and I said, I'm going to work there someday. Who was Kelly Johnson, and what did you learn from him? So Kelly Johnson was not only an aeronautical engineering genius, but also a visionary leader that, that founded the Skunk Works during World War II. And it was founded to create, to address a very specific uh, need, a, a capability shortfall that the, the U.S. Army Air Force had. And I, I didn't really learn about Kelly uh, un until I was in college. 
and you know started reading about the the U2 and the Blackbird and then understanding what the Skunk Works was, but it was still extremely mysterious at the time. Which made it cooler, right? Oh yeah, because you know there's always you want to know more about what you can't know about. And uh, so, uh, you know, when, when I said I was going to work there, of course, now, now the intensity builds. Is this something that you talked about with your friends? Oh, of course. I mean, we speculated on the performance of the Blackbird. And but what did they say when you said, hey, I'm going to work at the Skunk Works someday? I, my roommate in college that I'm still in touch with to this day, I, I remember, you know, we, we had the discussion about the Blackbird and, and me working at the Skunk Works. And I remember when we reconnected years later and I told him I was working there, he goes, how fast is it? You know, all the questions just started piling out immediately. Well, well, Jeff, I really can't, I really can't tell you about that. You know, sorry. But it, it was um, when, when we finally reconnected over, over a weekend back in the Atlanta area, it was a, a revisit of those times and of that, that speculation and excitement that we had as college students knowing that I had gotten to go do what I said I was going to do. And I was at the hallowed skunk works and, and working on things that I could not tell him about. Now, before we get into that, lots of people have dreams, but it takes hard work to achieve. What was the toughest part of learning to the technical side of what you needed to do to be able to be proficient? For me personally, it was classes. Uh, in college, I I am a a a very visual person. I I love artwork and and I love drawing, and so uh, my brain thinks in pictures, not in text. And so equations are easier for me because they're kind of a picture. But when we would have to go dig stuff out on our own, that that was tough for me. School was tough. Um, I didn't. I didn't really test well. I didn't. I don't think. Um, so that was that was a challenge for me getting getting through uh, college and and getting grades good enough to to qualify for a job in the defense aerospace industry because they tended to be really picky, especially during the lean hiring days. Now the Reagan defense buildup opened the aperture up, uh, which meant that they weren't quite as selective, which probably was another lucky thing for me. Um, I mean, I wasn't a bad student, but I was not a straight-A student. What was it about you that wanted to do something hard? You know, I don't, I don't know, really know what instilled that in me. I, I think back, now that you've asked me the question, I think back on, quite honestly, how my, my dad challenged me. It, it was, uh, my dad would give me uh, the challenge of an in-state and let me figure out how to accomplish it. I remember one time the lawnmower was broken, so uh, I told him I could fix it, and I managed to get it all torn apart. Get it, getting it back together was 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 a challenge I hadn't quite planned on. You know, there was no anger on his part. We just put it back together together, and I and and that was a learning experience. So I would say he was probably one of the first ones that 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 started giving me the the challenge of an end state and letting me figure out how to get there. Um, but there was a few. There was a few teachers in high school. There was a few professors in college that pulled me aside and said, 
that that I needed to look at myself in a way differently than I had been. That I uh, I needed to approach problems differently than than kind of the, the school book formula approach. And um, I, I I'm not going to say that I understood exactly what they meant at the time, but it I they raised my awareness of that. And so once you know to start looking for something, it's different than being blind to it. So I. I give them a lot of credit for for opening up my aperture. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room, where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the premium membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovan.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed, The Life of a Test Pilot and the Birth of an American Icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. So what were the steps after college? Tell me about your progression. My, my first job right out of college was with General Dynamics Fort Worth Division working on the F-16 and F-111. F-16 was just going into production, and if you look at some of the photos of the very first delivery of the, the aircraft to Hill Air Force Base, there's a shot out on the factory floor, and I'm just outside of camera frame. I'd been there two weeks, and they invited everybody down for the giant ceremony. The factory was mostly empty, uh, hadn't built up to rate production yet. Um, but I got to work on a production jet and got to see production ramp up. Um, I also got my first exposure to advanced design there. I was in the structures department, but I, I got a, 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 an insight into the, the world of, of where they drew the airplanes uh, as opposed to the parts to the airplane. And then in 1984, an opportunity came up to join the Skunk Works. And this was in a period when, unbeknownst to me at the time, the F-117 was ramping up and they needed to hire as many people as they could. And with all the the business that they had, they could not hire enough people from the white world. It was called CALAC or Lockheed California Aircraft Company. Uh, They couldn't hire enough from there. So they were hiring actually from outside straight into the Skunk Works. And so in 1984, my new wife and I packed up, left Fort Worth, Texas, and drove to Burbank, California to start a career. Go West, young man. Go West, young man. And of course, you know, realize I'm, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and so my family is, oh, you're going to California, you know, the land of sin, and you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I had all these admonitions for what California was. I remember we got out there shortly after the Olympics Olympics in L.A. We timed the start of my first day to where the Olympic crush would be over with. And it was, 
it was pretty warm. Everybody in LA was complaining about the warmth. But my wife and I were driving around with the windows down because it was so cool compared to Texas where we had just come from. The weather was just great. How does it feel to have come from the situation with your father, uh, nurturing your dream, having a dream, setting a goal, and then achieving it? How, does, how do you process that emotionally? It's hard to. I, 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 I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I remember in, in making the decision to retire, I, 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 was, you know, I, I was forced to go back and just kind of walk through my entire career at the Skunk Works. And it, 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 it was a, the time period that I did it was just one of disbelief of the things that I got to do, the people I got to meet, the projects I got to work on, the, the challenges I had been given, the, the, the horrible faceplant failures that I had, the incredible successes that I had had, I stood amazed at what I got to do. And, it, and I, I don't know that I had a giant plan for it. I, I refer to it as kind of Forrest Gumping my way along. There was opportunities put in front of me by my bosses that challenged me. But I, I just considered myself to be the luckiest person in the world. What was your biggest failure? <sighs> well, the biggest, okay. Um, when I allowed a problem introduced by someone else to raise my stress level up to the point that I took it out on someone else. Would you like to elaborate on that? Sure. I, um, I, was, I was on this really large program pursuit. We we're trying to win this really large program. And, and we were not in the most favorable of positions. Like always, I asked my bosses for challenges. I wanted the hard things to go do. And this was a tough one with a very tough customer. And the customer could tend to be very fickle. And uh, one of the people on my team... We, we, we had a problem with the customer in this one area, and I said, okay, don't do anything. Let, let, let me handle it. Let me handle it. And I come into the office one morning, and this person goes, okay, well, I called the customer, and um, it, it, I tried to fix things. It didn't go well, and now things are even worse. It's kind of like, okay, all right, don't do anything else. Again, let me go figure out how to get us out of this hole. So I go to my office, and I'm really frustrated. And so I thought, you know, we're in the wind tunnel right now doing some technical work. I'm gonna go get some technical juices flowing here. I'm gonna go to the wind tunnel. And I go to the wind tunnel, and my team is over there running trade studies on different wings for the airplane. And they're doing the data reduction in a way I had never seen before. And to me, it meant that everything on the page was a variable, which I, I couldn't understand how you could determine what was optimum. So it's kind of like, okay, stop, walk away. You know, these, these, these are the experts, walk away. Just go back to my office. I go back to my office. The person that I asked to not engage anymore to try to help went in and tried to fix it and made it even worse. So now I'm just boiling on the inside. And my chief engineer steps into the room and I just look at him and he doesn't even say a word. And I go, whatever happened to Arrow 101? 
except it wasn't delivered nearly that nicely. <laughs> and he looks up, his eyes get really big, and um, you know, he goes, what are you talking about? And I, I, I really dumped all over him about what was going on in the wind tunnel. And of course, he goes to find out what's going on. So now everybody in the wind tunnel is upset. You know that you know the program director is you know doesn't doesn't understand what's going on. And he was like, Steve, you know, are you kidding me? Are, really, you know, you you know better than to come in and and yell at someone because the dog bit you before you got in the car this morning. I mean, it's one of the fundamental rules of leadership. You know, compartmentalize. Don't react in real time. You know, solve problems, don't create more problems. And I, I just, I broke so many rules inside there. And I was so embarrassed by that. And I went over to the wind tunnel and I sat down with the team. And I, I explained to them, you know, hey, listen, I, I don't apologize for the question, but I do apologize for how I asked it. And here's, here was my concern. Instead of, you know, just asking you about it, I, I didn't because I didn't want to bother you. But here was my concern. We had a really great dialogue about it. And I even pulled one of the, the gentlemen aside that I'd worked with for years, and I apologized to him personally, saying, you know, not only was it not my job to look at the wind tunnel data, but it wasn't my job to critique it. You know, you know what you're doing, and I'm really sorry. And it's, in, as a leader, you can fail so quickly. You have to be on 24 7. Um, you're the pressure point. As, as I tell my teams, I'm, if, you, if you look at an hourglass, I'm that grain of sand blocking all that stuff in the top from getting down to the stuff in the bottom. My team is all down below me, and it's my job to protect them from all that stuff above us, all the pressures from ex executive leadership. Um, I'm the single accountability point for it. If something goes wrong, it's my fault. It's not theirs, but all the accolades have to go past me. And you, you have to stay focused on that, and, and I let it slip that day. What did you learn out of that experience? Well, I, it reminded me I have a set of rules that I operate to, and one of them is you know, don't react in real time. Um, it's uh, keep your cool regardless, and uh, never make anything personal. Uh, even though the job is very personal. Everybody's in there trying to do a fantastic job. Everybody comes in every day wanting to knock it out of the park. Nobody comes in saying, I'm really going to screw up today. Nobody does that. And so why introduce more stress into their already tough work life when the, the technical problems are, are, are a challenge, you know, just, you know, all the, 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 the modern business stuff places pressures on you. Why should I, as their leader, the person that's supposed to protect them from that stuff, add to that? I should set challenges, but I should not be the one causing unnecessary stress like that. Not being afraid to fail can have a huge impact on success. How does that ethos, how has that impacted your life and the Skunk Works? One of the things that, that I did... Uh, periodically throughout the course of my career, I would go and sit down with a leader that I did not work for and ask them how I'm perceived. Okay, so this meant that they got their information through the grapevine or through other people. Uh, it wasn't from personal experience, so it, 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 it was a, a calibration of my bow wave, okay? The, some, some perceptions that I don't control. And I, I went into one, one leader 
that, that quite honestly, you know, I was pretty competitive with. And I uh, asked him how it's perceived. And he said, you're seen as fearless. And that, that one statement, I remember how it, it rocketed through my brain because, you know, I'd constantly gone in and asked the bosses for challenges. I, I asked them for the hard things to go do, the, the, the low probability of go, low probability of win, low probability of success type programs. And I, I never batted an eye, but I never thought about how that was seen from the outside. I'd always encourage my teams, to, you know, do not fear failing because as soon as you fear failing, you start making different decisions than you would otherwise. I wanted them to despise failure with every fiber of their being, but I didn't want them to fear it. Um, I wanted them to, to make aggressive decisions and to, to take chances and to lean as far forward as they possibly could. And so to hear those words that I was, you know, I, one of the perceptions of me was that I was seen as being fearless was a, I'll say it allowed me to see the needle on the, the meter, you know, kind of where that sat. And that was a, that was a real moment for me because it, 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 it brought together a bunch of, a bunch of individual thoughts that I had, um, you know, a bunch of, we'll call them operating rules that I had, but it, it, it summed up the, the bow wave perception very nicely, and I'm very thankful to him for, for giving it to me that blunt. How has embracing risk impacted your life? Um, it's resulted in some spectacular failures and successes that have just blown my mind. And I remember there was one time the chairman of the board of the Lockheed Corporation came down to get a briefing on our program. I was the, the chief engineer. And we, we, th this program was all challenges. There, there was nothing about this program that was slam dunk technically or programmatically. And um, we, we get to the end of the briefing and he looks and he goes, I wish I was an engineer again. What you guys are doing is amazing. The, 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 the problems that you've solved are, are just mind boggling. The, the second event like that that I remember uh, we were briefing an, another chairman of the board of the Lockheed Corporation. I was the last person on the little tour to give a briefing. The boss says, everybody pile into the conference room. So I pile in with everyone. We sit down. It's the head of the Skunk Works and the chairman of the board sitting across the conference table from each other. And the head of the Skunk Works, Frank Capuccio, says... Now, Bob, referring to Bob Stevens, you may think we're crazy. And he goes, Frank, stop right there. It's a certifiable fact that you guys are crazy. There is no place else I go where I sit here and have person, you know, project leader after project leader after project leader tell me things that to me seem impossible. And yet they believe it. And they're out there solving those problems. And that's what I love about this corporation, and it's what I love about the Skunk Works. And as time goes along and you're kind of inside the gates, you start learning more about Kelly Johnson and the Blackbird, his baby. Yes. Tell me about 
the problem solved with the Blackbird and how they seemed impossible in the early 60s. Well, one of the, the leading tenets of, that Kelly had and, and instilled on his team was assume it could be done, as opposed to wondering whether or not or analyzing whether or not something could be done. You assumed it could be done and then figured out what it took to make it happen. And that would, that would define the risks that you would take on. And so as, as, as part of my you know, unpaid jobs, one of my unpaid jobs at the Skunk Works, I was a historian. And so I got to review Kelly's personal logs for the U2 and Blackbird, you know, A12, YF12, SR71, D21. And the A12 ox cart log was fascinating because you see where Kelly sets up working with the customer, this incredibly aggressive timeline. The original time to first flight was 24 months. You see this incredible set of goals that the government had for performance, including introducing technologies that had never been implemented on aircraft before, like stealth technology. You know, Not only was the performance hard enough, but now trying to be, to reduce the detectability to radar uh, you know, on top of all that, which is this monumental challenge, but you never saw in the log the blink of an eye. And when I would talk to some of the Blackbird engineers, you never in them detected that they thought they couldn't do it. They just assumed that they could. And they went off and tackled problems. And they would tell me stories, just repeated stories, of where this, this failed or this fell through the cracks or this didn't work as they planned. And they just fixed it. They just solved the problems as they as they showed up. And that that was a real lesson for me in in how to deal with extremely challenging problems, with challenging environments, challenging programs, whether it was programmatic or technical. The the ability to just emotionally remove yourself, assume it can be done, and then work the problem. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. By the time you got to the Skunk Works in the early 80s, the Nighthawk was kind of the next generation of the Blackbird and from a stealth standpoint. Talk to me about that airplane. Yeah, I remember, you know, I, I hire in in 1984 and you could tell something was going on, but I wasn't briefed on it. I was working over in an area called the Unmanned Aircraft Branch. And, and even at the time, we weren't allowed to say we worked in the Skunk Works. To people outside, I just said I worked at Lockheed. But you could tell something was going on. You really couldn't tell what it was. And I remember this, this one skunk grandfather would always ad- admonish us kids, you know, that there is no grapevine. You know, there is no rumor mill. And so um, but you, you saw lots of cars and, and that kind of stuff. So you knew something was going on. And then uh, I, I got told to report over to this one conference room for a briefing one day, and I didn't know what it was. And we stepped into the room, and we signed the paperwork, and they said, you just signed the paperwork to be briefed on what is called the F-117 Nighthawk Stealth Fighter. Everybody thinks it's called the F-19. Um, it's not. Um, they didn't even show us a picture of it. They just told us what it was and some basics about the program and all the admonitions to never ever speak of it to anybody that's not brief. The next step was to go pick up your badge, that, that the program badge that, that 
had the indicators on it that showed that you were briefed. And when I came out of the badge trailer, my boss was there and he goes, let's take a walk. And we walked over to 309 Free Chan, the big assembly hangars that nobody was allowed to go into. And we step inside and it was clear there was airplanes being built in there. And he goes, don't look over there, just keep your eyes to the left. And we went up the stairways on the mezzanine. Did you sneak a look? Really? No, I, you know, I mean, but, but you have to understand when you're on the ground level, um, there was so much tooling around the airplanes, it was hard to see the airplane. So, and all the scaffolding, you know, the walkways and that kind of stuff. And so, and, and, and we were kind of back underneath the mezzanine some. So, you know, going up the stairs, he, I, I could have seen some stuff, but he walked between me and kind of looking out over the, 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 the railing. Um, and we get up to about the third or fourth level, and he goes, look, and, and, and there's that arrowhead shape down there. And it was just, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was just like far out, man. You know, all the rumors of the stealth fighter and everything, everybody's wrong in what it looks like. And here it is being built just a few hundred feet from Hollywood Way. You know, the doors were open, but had curtains that obscured the view looking into the factory. And here was this airplane that everybody was speculating about, wanted to know about so bad. Um, and they were they were wrong about so much stuff. And I, it, it gave me a true appreciation for the value of there not being a grapevine, of people not talking, of people respecting the security, because your security is only as good as your people. And of course, this is a climactic year. These are the climactic years of the Cold War. And this was a weapon that we desperately needed. Oh, it was, it was absolutely, because it was a fundamental game changer. And you want to, you know, everybody says, you know, why do we have secrets and stuff? Well, it's, the typical rule is it takes about one-tenth the amount of time to develop a countermeasure to any new measure that is introduced. One-tenth the time and money. And so if you're going to spend all this money going after this, this game-changer technology, why do you want to shoot yourself in the foot and tell the bad guys what you have and, and allow them to develop a, a countermeasure for it? So, I mean, it was... As I got more briefings on it, got to understood the jet more, uh, got to talk to the pilots about it, uh, understood what its capabilities were, it, it was eye-watering. And as you talk to the engineers that worked on it, uh, that design, the challenges that they had, boy, they, they had some enormous challenges. And, it, and it's some of the stuff that you would think would be so simple to solve, but the level of stealth they were going for totally changed how they had to approach the problem. What was the biggest problem that had to be solved on that aircraft? Um, wow, okay, so I'm going to be a little careful here. Um, I, the, the biggest problem, I, I think there were, there, were, there were kind of two challenge areas. One was the propulsion system, getting air into the engine and out of the engine while meeting the radar cross-section requirements. That's an exceptionally difficult thing to do. And as a result, the inlet and nozzle on the 117 looked nothing like any other airplane. The, the other was you had this airplane that you had to, to teach to fly. It was unstable in all three axes. And so the, the amount of work that went into the flight control system to, as, as Dick Cantrell said, teach the airplane to fly was really impressive, and that's where um, people like Bob Loschke and the 
Ed Burnett and those guys that worked up how to make that airplane fly, make it feel like a regular airplane, were doing absolute magic. And the, the stealth, you know, was always a, a giant challenge, devil in the details kind of thing. But the, in, in terms of basic airplane science, that was two truly feats of engineering. Did you ever go to work in the morning dreading to go to work, or were you just, man, I can't wait? There were some days where you kind of, you didn't dread going to work, you dreaded what you were stepping into. I, I, I you know, having, having wanted to work on airplanes since I was a little kid, I felt honored to get to go to work. There were was, there was some days where there was going to be some meetings that started off in the morning that were going to be really ugly, and I did not look forward to those. But I never dreaded going to work. And so what's the, what's the meaning that you would want people to take away from that? How do you deal with, you know, you've got this gigantic um, piece of magic you're, you're trying to pull off, but you have all of these steps that have to be overcome. You, you absolutely positively have to have that incredible undercurrent of a passion for what you do. I mean, it, you know, it, was, it was airplanes, 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 airplanes since I was a little kid. And so that was the, the engine buried deep down inside of me that as, you know, the waves would toss you around and, and, and beat you up, it, it didn't matter. That engine kept running and kept just powering you through, you know, the rougher times. That night in January 1991, when we didn't really know what the Nighthawk would do until we found out what it could do, what were you doing and what's your memory of that? I was actually in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, I had stopped at a gas station to fill up my car, and as I got back in the car, I remember the announcer saying, something's happening in Baghdad. And I, I you know, I, I just, I remember I just said a prayer because it meant we were going to war. And that was going to be horrible for a lot of people on both sides. And one of the things that, that always struck me as I, as I worked around the skunk grandfathers, none of them really wanted to see the jet used. It's, it was part of being the biggest kid on the block so nobody would pick on you. And, and you know, intellectually, I understood that. But when that announcer stated, you know, that, that explosions were happening in Baghdad, you knew that our guys were overhead dropping those first bombs. And you had a prayer that this would just be over with. Since we had to do it, it would be over with quickly. And, and we could we could just you know get back to the table, so to speak. But you had to have satisfaction when you found out that all that technology worked. Well, there's there's the, you know the, the there's the engineer inside of you that you know in, intellectually you knew it was going to work. That there's that emotion of what what didn't what didn't you think of, but. Oh, it was amazing to see the performance of the airplane. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. It, it, it was not a joyful thing for me. It, it was to, to see the airplane used. It was not joyful. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was a very damped, a damped moment. 
What other projects can you talk about? <laughs> I, I was on the JASM, the Joint Air-to-Surface Standoff Missile, so my name is on the patent for that one. Tell me about that. That was a, an interesting project. We were working with our missiles division, and I went over to, uh, I was in between projects, and they, I went over to work with the configuration team over there, and it was, it was a philosophy of everything must earn its way on and serve more than one function. And so we literally started with a configuration that was a body and a wing and an engine, because it was a cruise missile, and we made everything else earn its way on. Whether it was tails or whatever, we made everything earn its way on. And that included, you know, ultimately to the guys that were working structural components and, and how it was going to be assembled. Uh, that was one of the, the best scrubs of how you try to create something you know, it's inexpensive, you know, weapon systems are expensive, but to create, you know, a pretty elaborate piece of hardware as inexpensively as possible. And I always remember the chief engineer said, listen, this doesn't take off and land. It's dropped and it makes one spectacular landing. Other than that, it sits in a box for its life. And so let's, let's not design it like an airplane. And so that's, that was the big things I remember about JASM. The one other program that um, was really instrumental in shaping how I look at configuration development was working on what was called the ATF DIMVAL phase, demonstration validation phase, which was doing configuration development for what became the YF-22, which was the demonstrator for the F-22 Raptor. Uh, this was a, a combined program working with General Dynamics, my, my friends in Fort Worth, and Boeing. And so you had not only the huge technical challenge of stealth but now going supersonic with maneuverability and you know lots of sensors on board you know just that that generation beyond the f-117 but you had all the politics of three companies you know frenemies or competitors as they were called uh, working in the same project area uh, that was the technical challenge was great but it, it really, it, it, it instilled in me a real understanding of the balance of the technical and programmatic that had to be done, the, you know, the, the almost dance that all the leaders had to do to bring together this group of people that, that created, quite honestly, an answer better than any of the three individual efforts. It, it, it showed the power of, of a team and of diverse thought. Tell me about being in college and having a poster of the Blackbird and what that symbolized about your life. As I think back on the, the, the poster on the wall uh, of the Blackbird during my college days, it, it was a full circle thing for me. I, uh, at, at, at my retirement party, I, I, I had told the story of the poster up on the wall and, and I talked about dreams and dreams coming true. And I actually used the lyrics from a song by Aerosmith, and talking about rejoicing in every single day, in every single circumstance, whether it's good or bad, um, because you don't know how many of these days you have. And to have enough days that you can see a dream fulfilled 
is an incredible, incredible feeling. Because I have some friends that didn't get a chance to see their dreams fulfilled. You know, their, their, their time on, on earth was not long enough for that. And uh, so I, I, it just it washes over you as a blessing to realize that, that you had that great fortune. And what would you say to a young person out there today who, for whatever reason, doesn't believe in dreaming big? Well, it's dreaming big. If, if, you, if you don't dream big, you're, I mean, you're always going to, odds are you're going to fall short of a dream. So dream, dream extra big so that you really achieve something. When we sit there and set goals for our lives, we tend to do it around a construct of what we understand. And, and, and so we have this design space that we shape what we believe our future is going to be. And unfortunately, just subconsciously, we have boundaries out there and, and we're honoring those boundaries. And I, I use this, this thing I call the ship's example to teach people that that they need to be aware of boundaries and tr try to break them. And so the ship's example works like this. I ask you to name different kinds of ships. If you thought of aircraft carrier, ocean liner, rowboat, destroyer, congratulations, you're incredibly well educated, give yourself an F. If you thought of submarine, give yourself a D. I did not ask you to name things that float on water, I asked you to name different kinds of ships. If you thought of airship, give yourself a C. It actually has nothing to do with water. If you thought of spaceship, give yourself a B. If you thought of friendship, ownership, relationship, give yourself an A. And so as we, I don't care whether it's a technical challenge or a career challenge or a programmatic challenge, whatever it is, we have boundaries that we have set out there as a result of our experiences. And we have to realize in all likelihood, there is stuff beyond those boundaries. And so your dream needs to reach beyond those boundaries, those, those perceived limits that you have. And, and, and with the ship's example, you, you go from that very small framework of something that floats on water to something that includes you know, interpersonal dynamics. And, and that's how big you need to dream because it's gonna allow you to achieve so much more than you would if you limit yourself to floating on water. What was the biggest obstacle you faced in your career? Me. How so? Um, when I would forget to dream. When I would not stand back up after failing. Um, you know, a little bit too much pity party. When I would let other people down. It, it, again, it wasn't it wasn't failing that was a problem. It was my response to it, and so every. The only thing I can control is me and how I respond to things. So it's, you know, it's, it's me letting myself down has been the, the biggest inhibitor. But I have been incredibly blessed to have people around me that would bend over and lift me up. And that can be life-changing when you are looking so inward to have people that will just put their hand on your shoulder and say, hey, Look up. Step up. What's the most important thing you've learned about yourself? Most important thing I learned about myself. I, I am so far from perfect and that I am better 
when challenged. I am better when working with a team. I am better when things are at their worst. Now that seems counterintuitive to some people, but of course it's not. It, it's not, but it's when, when things are bad, it, you have no choice but to rise up. You have no choice but to, to step up. You know, otherwise the weight of it just presses you down further and further. So for, for me, there, you know, there was no choice. You, you had to step up. And I, you know, I, I would go back and look at the obstacles that my dad had. My, and during the war, my dad had what he called his worst day ever. And uh, it, was, it was a result of an attack on the ship that left him trapped below decks for about 24 hours. And he thought he was in an air pocket of a ship that had sunk and was just waiting to die. Tell me that story, if you would. The WASP and uh, its task group, task force, the WASP and its task force were off the, the coast of Japan doing strikes on mainland Japan in March of, of 1945. And they had been under attack for, you know, about a day. Dad said they'd been on uh, on attack, you know, under attack for a lot of the night. Uh, the, the Japanese were, were pretty relentless because we were getting so close. And at about 7.30 or so in the morning, uh, the radar showed all clear. And so Dad had been uh, at watch, you know, or at his gun mount all night. Uh, his gun mount was after the island and below the five-inch gun, so he was covered in grease paint to protect himself from the flash of the five-inch guns and was covered in soot from where they'd been laying smoke all night. And so he had about a, a half an hour or so hour before his next watch started because it didn't matter what you had been doing. You just stuck to the schedule. So he went down and got in the chow line. He was standing there and the chow line was really long and wasn't moving. So he, a guy goes, maybe we ought to go get a shower first, you know, clean up, come back and grab a sandwich and head back out to the mount. So they, he headed up to the torpedo room and right as he stepped in the torpedo room, there was this enormous blast and a Japanese airplane had dropped an armor-piercing bomb that went down through the flight deck, hangar deck, penetrated a couple more decks and blew up in the galley very close to where he had been standing and uh, killed a, a bunch of sailors immediately. I think there was a, a little over 200 people that ended up dying uh, from that one, one attack. So dad was thrown about 30 feet into a bulkhead. Immediately, you know, the, the training kicks in. He steps into the shop area and seals the hatch up. Okay. He's trying to, you know, tighten the, Tighten the ship up. That was that was what you did. And seawater's pouring in through all the vents, and and you know the the engines had stopped. And so you know there's a few guys in there with them, and they just they thought they were in there to die. And so you know had just flashlights and stuff, and tried telling jokes, but you know with seawater coming in, the ship was listing terribly. And after a few hours, you know they felt the ship moving again, and the the captain came on the loudspeaker and said, "Hey, we've taken a bad hit, but we're underway." Um, we'll be getting you guys out as quick as we can. Fires had warped a lot of the bulkheads, and they ended up um, working their way through air vents and stuff to crawl out onto the deck. And it, it was about 24 hours between the time that uh, the bomb went off and he made it 
up to the flight deck. And he, he said he remembered laying on the flight deck with the sun shining on him and just said, you know, that's my worst day. Okay. And so I'm just going to, you know, nothing can be as bad as that. And so as, as my dad's business would fluctuate and that kind of thing, um, as, as he would hit rough times and stuff, he would say, but it's not as bad as my worst day. And so I, I took the philosophy of saying, you know, that was a bad day. I'm never going to experience anything like that. I'm going to use that as my calibration of a bad day. I had some rough days, as my wife can attest, um, but they were never as bad as that worst day. But how in the world do you deal with falling in that line after Kelly Johnson? You know, the expectations inside the Skunk Works, the DNA of the Skunk Works kind of establishes expectations. And so you, you, you really want to meet those expectations. And as I would study Kelly's papers and his notebooks, I, you know, I wanted to live up to that. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't, it's not for me to judge whether I did or not. But I, I will tell you, I didn't want to be the next Kelly Johnson. I wanted to be the first me. You know, the, the environment that Kelly had with the Skunk Works was very different. The expectations were different. The customers were different. We lived in a very different time, uh, a very different set of programmatic pressures, a very different set of customer expectations. And as a result, you know, the Skunk Works had evolved a lot. And the expectations had evolved a lot. So to, to be Kelly was... Um, that could be unintentionally career inhibiting in today's environment. You know, there was, Kelly, Kelly was a controversial figure. There were just about as many people that didn't like him as liked him. And, and that's okay. You're, you're never going to get everybody to like you. But, but Kelly was a product of his day, and I needed to be a product of my day, but respecting the DNA of the Skunk Works. And how does the skunk works and that DNA reflect who we are as a country? Wow, I have never been asked that question before. The, the skunk works to me is a place where anything can be done. Okay, that's, that was, you know, if you, if you build on, on that, that unwritten rule of assume it can be done, Kelly, Kelly and and Ben and all the subsequent leaders and teams took on challenges that a lot of people, you know, called unbelievable, impossible, incredible. As I as I would tell people, as we'd sit around and talk about Skunk Works projects, I go, you know, every airplane company created airplanes that set world records. But the Skunk Works consistently created airplanes that changed world history. And they, they were these, these breakthrough products that, that not only stimulated the imagination, but I think reflected just American ingenuity, American drive, uh, American passion, and American determination. Thanks to Elaine McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. 
you too can become an American achiever.